Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North on this Wednesday, October 4th. You're already halfway through the week, so congratulations, you made it through. As I mentioned on the show yesterday, I am on the road this week, hence the uh, unusual environment from which I am broadcasting. I'm in the nation's capital of Ottawa. And after the show yesterday, I decided to take a little bit of a walk around, went down by the Parliament buildings, and I was there at the moment that question period had ended. And why that's significant is because I was out in front of West Block in that uh, building, which is, well, as the name suggests, on the west side of the parliamentary precinct. And a bunch of members of Parliament were coming out, cabinet ministers, Justin Trudeau, I think he snuck out a back door. But all of these people, these very important people in Canada's government and Parliament were there. And when you come out, you walk south towards Wellington Street, which you may be familiar with as the center, the epicenter of the Freedom Convoy protests a couple of years back. But yesterday, there was a different type of truck on Wellington Street at that exact spot, this serendipitous moment I snapped a picture of. Let's throw that up there for those watching. Ah, yes, no one wants to freeze in the dark. That was a truck being driven courtesy of the Alberta government, which has launched an $8 million ad campaign opposing, among other things, the federal government's commitment to net zero, a very aggressive pledge, which will have very real consequences for the economy. Now, I don't know how many times that truck was circling the block, but he ended up, uh, it was a male, I'm not I'm not being like gender uh, bias here. It was a male driver, ended up at that perfect, spot at that perfect moment uh, where we will uh, discuss, uh, among other things, whether the people that need to see that message are listening. Alberta Environment Minister Rebecca Schultz joins us now. Rebecca, great timing on that, by the way. I don't know if you were the ones like with the roadmap saying you got to turn onto Wellington at, you know, exactly 302, but it, it worked. You know, uh, we obviously didn't give that spe specific of direction, but I mean, it is an important message for MPs from across the country to see, especially those uh, who are part of the federal liberal government, because Canadians right across our country, not just in Alberta, uh, but we're hearing this across the prairies in Atlantic Canada, that the draft clean electricity regulations, not only are they wildly expensive, they're completely unrealistic, and they will risk leaving Canadians in the dark. This is completely unacceptable. And that's why we launched this campaign. You know, one of the challenges here is is that this is a, a, a campaign that costs a, a fair bit of money. And I know that when you're dealing with provinces and, and governments, the budgets are very large, but $8 million is still not insignificant here. Why can you not just pick up the phone and call your federal counterpart? Why can Premier Danielle Smith not just pick up the phone and talk to the federal government the way you'd hope in a federation levels of government communicate and cooperate? You know, unfortunately, what we've seen is that the federal government has not listened to provinces and they certainly haven't listened to electricity providers on essentially why these regulations are so problematic. They say that they consulted, but then when they came out with draft one of the clean electricity regulations, 
like very little, almost none of that feedback that was provided by provinces or our electricity companies was listened to or included. And so, you know, from here, I mean, we are in discussions with the federal government, we as in Alberta, uh, about these specific regulations and other pieces of legislation or regulations that the federal government is looking at that would impact uh, our economy, jobs, and the well-being of Albertans. But specifically here, uh, this is something that will impact all Canadians. And if the federal government, um, you know, first of all, they've showed that they haven't been listening to the provinces, they haven't been listening to companies. I think that hearing from Canadians is, is one way that hopefully we can remind them of who we're here to serve and why these regulations cannot go forward the way they've been presented. Albertans, Canadians, they do not want to see their electricity bills go up three, four, five times, right? The cost estimates are up to $1.7 trillion. Canadians will have to pay for that somehow on their taxes, on their bills. We see other countries around the world. We see also places like California, Texas, Germany, where they are actually facing rolling brownouts, blackouts, rationing power, and, and going back to coal-fired generation. We don't want that. What we're saying to the federal government is be a partner, Let's have discussions where we put ideology aside and use common sense and put Albertans and Canadians and their very real concerns about affordability and reliability first. Uh, Justin Trudeau yesterday said that Albertans are, quote, all in for what his government is doing on this. Now, I would say, given the uh, narrative that emerged during the last election campaign in which your UCP got a majority, that Albertans are, are not all in for uh, the Liberal government's approach to this. But, but I mean, how do you even reconcile that claim with the experiences that you're seeing from your constituents? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting that they pick and choose facts and they, they do misrepresent, I think, uh, the feedback that they've been hearing from especially Alberta power companies. I mean, we've been meeting with companies over the last number of weeks to understand why these regulations are so problematic. A number of those companies are and their representatives are actually in Ottawa providing that very real feedback. Uh, you know, we saw Minister Guibault say, for example, capital power is fully supportive. Well, Capital Power also said that they can't do this before 2045. So, you know, I, I think it's it's a little disingenuous, to be honest with you. Uh, it's not 100% truthful. We know that the way that these regulations are written right now uh, absolutely cannot be implemented in Alberta. And even our independent system operator has raised concerns about grid reliability. And what I break that down to is, I mean, I represent a lot of young families. We have a lot of seniors. When we're talking about rationing power, think about that. In other places, they ration power at areas of, or times of high demand. So four and 9 p.m. When I think about that, I think about families and the people I serve picking up their kids from school, doing homework, trying to have dinner, getting to kids' activities, and doing that in the dark while paying more for less reliable power. I just don't think that that's what anybody wants to see. And, you know, when we look at the, the criminal code aspects that Minister Guibault uh, has suggested that there will be uh, criminal code essentially sanctions under the Environmental Protection Act for powering our grid. That is a, that is a very real problem.
And I don't think that that's what Albertans or Canadians want to see. You mentioned capital power, which I, I think raises an interesting and important point here. Is your issue the timeline? Because the government has been on emissions reduction schemes in general, very aggressive. And I think they keep rewriting the timeline and giving the country and the provinces and, and everyone in it less and less time to do this. But so is that the issue or is it the fundamental ask underlying it, irrespective of the time frame? I mean, first of all, of course, this is an area of provincial jurisdiction. So this is another area where uh, the federal liberal government is infringing on an area of provincial jurisdiction. And I think the big issue here is that they fundamentally do not understand how power generation works in each of the provinces, and they're not treating the provinces as unique. So where we're left is a situation where they're um, prescribed regulations are just, they're, they're completely... Uh, not feasible for a couple of reasons. One, the technology does not exist. The standards they've put in place have not been tested or proven anywhere in the world. And we would have to develop them, test them, prove them, and scale it up across our whole system in just over 10 years. That is completely unrealistic. The other thing is around the number of um, hours that we can run peaker generation. So that helps us, especially, you know, think winter, it's cold right across Canada, not just in Alberta, uh, throughout the winter months. Now, if we only have 18 days of peaker capacity, where, you know, the wind isn't blowing, the sun isn't shining, renewables are, are not generating the baseload that we need, and you need natural gas peaker capacity to come in and essentially provide that baseload natural gas. 18 days does not get us through, through the month of January. Mm-hmm. That's that that is wildly unreasonable for again not just Alberta but right across the country and system operators across the country are saying this just isn't feasible um and so you know i hope that this campaign urges on canadians to tell the feds tell their mps why this is so problematic and you know i, I hope that M- mps are are looking at those ads are hearing it on the radio and then are hearing from canadians just how concerned they are are you getting support for this from other provinces you know here's what i would say we've had provinces right across the country articulate um, why these regulations are so problematic. I mean, yesterday, uh, it, you know, not necessarily specific to clean electricity, but the Nova Scotia um, reports around energy poverty, right? When we talk about energy reliability and energy poverty and why people are at risk because of um, the federal government's um, ideological goals, you know, reading reports of people asking, how do I keep my home? How do I keep my home? How do I put food on the table? How can we afford this carbon tax? That is is a problem. I mean, we've seen Ontario system operator also essentially say that the current draft regulations would uh, be problematic for their grid as well. We've seen it here in Alberta. I know Saskatchewan is opposed. I think a few months ago, Manitoba also had some concerns. And so what we're asking for, I think, as provinces is some common sense. Let's not use ideology. Let's listen to Canadians whose top concerns right now our affordability, the cost of living, obviously the carbon tax is driving um, that to a huge extent, uh, of course, in inflation. But let's listen to those very real concerns and make sure that, you know, when when a mom wakes up in the middle of the night with baby, that wasn't, you know, too long ago. I, I remember what that was like. And could you imagine that mom waking up in the middle of the night and not being able to turn on the lights? 
Like that is the reality of what the federal government is putting forward. I am encouraging the federal government. We are uh, here across Alberta encouraging the federal government to actually think about the Canadians that this would impact, how it would impact them and what that would mean in their day to day lives as a, at a time when cost of living is already a top concern, increased electricity bills for less reliable power. That just isn't something that I think Canadians want to see. But and I think you're very right when you point out how all provinces and certainly a few in particular have a shared interest in this. But in terms of going to the extent that Alberta is, uh, you know, maybe not necessarily with an ad campaign, but really asserting provincial jurisdiction here. Are you seeing the support from other provinces that you need or would like? You know, I think that we are. I mean, we hear other provinces across the country saying that this is just unreasonable and unrealistic. I mean, I I certainly felt like this campaign was something that was needed to make sure that the federal government is hearing those concerns and that we're focusing on, um, you know, what's really at the heart of the issue, which is the people that we are elected here to serve and their very real concerns around affordability and reliability. And, you know, I think what we're seeing out of Atlantic Canada uh, and of course, across the Prairie Provinces shows that this isn't just from Alberta. This this is an across Canada issue. And it's also why I think the federal government really needs to respect provincial jurisdiction uh, and, and take the feedback from provinces on what makes their systems unique. Well, I think the last few years has shown that you can certainly make a point by bringing a truck to Ottawa. Now you're doing a, a different type of a truck on Wellington Street there. We had that uh, image. It certainly was noticed uh, by people, uh, whether they'll uh, heed the words on it. And in the radio ads and billboards, uh, time will tell. Uh, Minister Rebecca Schultz, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. You as well. Anytime. Thanks, Andrew. All right. Thanks very much. And uh, I should just point out on this, I'll I'll play this clip because this came up last night. Uh, I was chatting. I was uh, meeting with someone I I know in Ottawa who's from Alberta, and they were telling me I wasn't invited to it, but there was some Alberta reception last night. And I was like, oh, what's that? Not that I, you know, expected to be invited to, you know, the big fancy galas in (laughs) Ottawa or anything like that. But uh, it was interesting. All of these Alberta business leaders were getting together. And some of them, of course, are, are very supportive of the Liberal government. And whether that's just jockeying to, you know, support whoever's in power, I don't know. But others were bringing very real concerns and not just from the oil and gas sector. So it was very interesting to hear Justin Trudeau make this claim last night. We have a lot of work to do, but the world has a lot of work to do. And as we figure out these solutions, yes, it's about meeting the challenge that we need to meet to face down climate change and ensure a stronger future for our kids. But it's also about putting good jobs in our communities, putting food on the table, and building that bright future for future generations. That is the capacity that I know Albertans are all in for. Albertans are all in for the federal government's emission reduction scheme. Well, if that were the, I mean, maybe all in is a bit of a stretch. I mean, at the very least, there wouldn't be an $8 million ad campaign that is on your doorstep if that were the case. But even then, I'd say talk to some real Albertans. Talk to people in this province. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about people who are politically conservative and don't like the government for ideological reasons. I'm talking about people, and Minister Schultz made this point very clearly, I think, that are being forced to care about politics when they otherwise wouldn't because of energy issues, energy prices that are continuing to go up, a federal government that is in the face of record inflation levels, a federal government that is imposing a carbon tax that continues to go up, it's an escalator of a tax, 
and doing so completely unconcerned with the increase that has on cost of living. Now, I don't know if you saw it today or yesterday, I think it was one of these uh, Bank of Co- uh, Bank of Canada guys was uh, giving a talk and he was speaking about how inflation is going to cause inflation, where that uh, co- companies that have to increase their prices to deal with the rising costs of their goods will then have to uh, re- increase their prices to cover that. And then people will go in it. He said it causes a feedback loop, which is kind of a, a dumb and obvious point at the same time, because, well, yes, obviously the rising cost of things causes more things to go up. But that's not a bug of inflation. That is a feature of inflation. And of all of the monetary considerations and economic considerations that go into inflation, that go into why it is that we are seeing this, not just in Canada, but elsewhere as well, governments have to be very careful about the things that they have control over. The things that they can control, you can't sometimes put the genie back in the bottle on some of these aspects, but what the government can do is not impose new taxes, not impose new regulations and new restrictions and new burdens. And this is like, it's such a fundamentally obvious point. You cannot look around in this country and not see that people are hurting that people are struggling, that people are going to be driven into bankruptcy if they have not been already, that people are genuinely choosing between whether they heat their home or whether they just wrap themselves in a blanket because they cannot afford to do the former, certainly not the way they should. And if you were to look, and maybe I'll have to take some time and read some of these emails. Look at the emails I've gotten. And by the way, I've seen this before in Ontario many years ago. Hydro rates, electricity were massively concerning for people. It had been going up and up and up. They had doubled in a very short period of time. And a lot of people who lived in in condos and some folks had to rely on electricity to heat their home. I, I mean, at the very least, they needed electricity to power their air conditioners. But people were struggling. And people were saying, I'm not going to do laundry as often. I'm not going to keep my lights on. I'm going to unplug these appliances because they could not afford to do it. They could not afford to do these things that were so fundamental. Heating is not a luxury item, certainly if you live in Alberta. And if you live elsewhere, maybe you don't realize how acutely problematic it is. For example, I was in Edmonton with someone uh, once, and I, I can't remember what it was. I try to avoid Edmonton as much as I love Alberta. And we were at some public parking lot and they were looking at these little boxes at all the parking spaces. And they said, what are those? And I said, well, here's a story for you. It's so cold in the winter that people have to plug in their cars at times so that they'll be able to start them up again. And that was to this person, a completely foreign concept as it was to me the first time I saw it. And this is, again, one of these things that illustrates how different life is for people in Alberta from people in Ontario, people in the north versus people in the south of Canada. And this is, I think, a fascinating, fascinating tale that I would marvel at if it weren't so devastating for so many people in this country. A government that has zero interest, a a government that has zero interest in the plight of ordinary people, especially in parts of the country where the liberals have no vested interest. There is no need for the government of Canada to worry about what people in Alberta are dealing with because people in Alberta are never going to vote for the liberals. But I think what was being brought up here, what was being brought up by Rebecca Schultz, for example, 
that this is not just an Alberta versus Ottawa thing is important. Now, I think she was being very charitable and very diplomatic. I, I don't want to put words into her mouth, but I actually don't believe other provinces have joined up to fight this the way they should have. Remember, a few years ago, when the federal carbon tax was under the microscope, you had Ontario that was leading the charge with a court battle. You had Saskatchewan that was fighting it. You had Alberta that was fighting it. New Brunswick kind of got a little uh, got a little cowardly on it, and they just joined one of the, uh, not even joined, they kind of intervened in one of the other fights. But nevertheless, you had four country, four provinces that were, there's a Freudian slip calling them countries. Some may wish. But you had four provinces that were taking the federal government to court over this. Now, the problem is a lot of those kind of just shut up after they lost, after the Supreme Court of Canada ruled. And that Supreme Court of Canada decision said, yeah, the federal government can do what it wants on mandating a carbon tax. Most provinces just said, okay. And they carried on. Alberta, though, is still making a claim to provincial jurisdiction. Now, these electricity regulations, not the same as the carbon tax, although I think the federal government will probably rely on a very similar argument, which is to say that climate change is a national issue, because now they have this as it's called raised judicata, that it's already been adjudicated. They're going to say, oh, yes, the Supreme Court already ruled that climate change is actually a federal responsibility. So all of these things that we do to fight it, therefore, our our. And, you know, it's one thing to see Alberta run this ad campaign. And I think, you know, power to them if they think that's a worthwhile use of Alberta taxpayer dollars. That's something Alberta citizens can decide. But the point that I would raise beyond that is that they need to be prepared to do more. And Alberta Premier Danielle Smith has already spoken about making this an opportunity to flex the Sovereignty Act, which is the bill, a very controversial bill. The media can't stand it in Alberta. But a bill, I should say a law now, because it's been adopted, that asserts provincial jurisdiction when Alberta feels it has a claim to it. And I think this is incredibly, incredibly important, which is why the federal government is talking about criminal power. Because, the again, and you have to understand their endgame here, the Constitution says criminal law is a federal matter. It's very clear on that. So by making this criminal in nature, the federal government is trying to just pull all of this into its constitutional jurisdiction. And I think Alberta is right to say, no, 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 this is an energy issue. This is a resource issue. This is a provincial matter. So that's going to be what is uh, going to continue happening here. My thanks again to Rebecca Schultz for coming on the show. Uh, we all need to do our part, we're told, right? There was this great uh, piece in the Globe and Mail, and by great, I mean infuriating, but entertaining at the same time. Road trips can be environmentally friendly and the effort is worth the impact. Now, I don't particularly like driving. I find driving to be very tiresome, especially because I live along the 401, which is a highway in Ontario that uh, is a parking lot more often than not. But nevertheless, I understand the romanticization of the open road. My dad, uh, many years ago, used to always fantasize about uh, driving Route 66, which I think is now like Interstate 40 or something, which lacks the, the charm. But uh, nevertheless, the thing that I find fascinating here is that this is a column that is an ode to the road trip. And I'm like, okay, this is fantastic. And then you read it. And I get concerned with the premise that the author brings to this, which is that uh, there is an issue if you want to have a road trip, but you also want to be environmentally conscious. I live a beef free, kid-free, reasonably car-free life. I don't invest in fossil fuels. I'm a minimalist. I only own one pair of jeans, but I like to travel. Oh, this is terrible. How is she going to travel when she is 
committed to all of these things. Well, there is a way that you can travel and save the planet at the same time. Just a few simple steps I'm going to share for you. I'm going to read from the article. One, you should only travel to destinations that are part of the C40, a network of cities that are united to confront climate change. So you get 40 cities in the world. I don't know what they are. I'm assuming that uh, some of the more fun places might be on the list. Many might not be. You can also buy carbon offsets if you need to fly somewhere. So you know those air travel things that uh, are seeing an increase in price? Yeah, you got to voluntarily pay more at checkout to get your uh, carbon credits so that you can uh, sleep at night, apparently. And oh, and you also had to go in a place where you can avoid charger anxiety. So you have to uh, drive and only take routes where you can charge your electric car, which means, of course, it's unstated. You need to make sure you buy or rent an electric car first. Remember that guy we spoke to a few weeks ago on the show who like tried to do the right thing by buying an electric truck and then found that he had to like just ditch it on the way on this road trip because there was no way he could reliably charge it? Yeah, that's the part that's not mentioned in this column. Uh, what else do you need to do here? Make environmentally friendly choices. You can go to hotels that have an environmental certification. And uh, there were a few other tips here. There's a, a website that were recommended that lists local restaurants that uh, eliminate food waste. So uh, you can, of course, lower your environmental impact there. Uh, what else? Some electric vehicle car rental services. Uh, we got an increase to charger anxiety. Hotels that are committed to net zero. So I, my Dennis Miller, the comedian, had a great bit once. He said the great thing about hotels is that you can just like churn through uh, towels like Kleenex, which is a very apt. Like I use more towels when I'm in hotel than uh, in a hotel for one night than I use in my entire life otherwise. But uh, this is the thing. So you can take a road trip and eliminate 397 kilograms of carbon too. So here's another thing you could do: just get in the car and go. This is the thing. I mean, the environmentalists have overcomplicated every aspect of your human existence. And it's one thing to make a choice to not have children, to not eat beef, to drive an electric car. It's another thing to take this prescriptive approach, which is the danger here. And you wonder about what's going on here. Because some people may say, oh, why are you beating up on this column? It's just a woman that made a choice. This article was sponsored by Destination Canada which is the government's tourism agency. So this is like a narrative of travel that the government of Canada is pushing, that we're all supposed to travel in a way that monitors our environmental footprint. So uh, my goodness, this is, uh, I, I am, I've never met anyone that pays the carbon offset on their uh, airplane ticket. Uh, Ontario has this thing, when you pay your Ontario income tax, there's a, a section that you can voluntarily pay down the provincial debt in. So you could say, I wish to donate my tax refund to the Ontario government. And every day, believe it or not, people do this. And they, they raise, I don't know, it's a few hundred thousand, maybe it's a couple of million dollars. Uh, people do this. And I'm like, who on earth is voluntarily giving their money to the government? This is the same question. Who on earth is voluntarily paying a carbon offset? I'll tell you who. Liberal cabinet ministers when they travel because, and I'll say it loud for the people at the back, it's not their money. Anyway, uh, last night we had the Manitoba election. Now, I don't pretend to be an expert in Manitoba politics. One of the members of our team is from Manitoba, which is, uh, fortunately for me, a reminder that Manitoba exists as a province. I have nothing against it. It's just not one I've ever been to. It's the only province, in fact, I've never been to. And uh, some people say maybe I should on principle avoid Manitoba, but no, if there's a reason to go, I will go. 
But uh, every time I make fun, every time I talk about Manitoba, I end up making fun of Manitoba, and I get like complaints from two people from Manitoba. I think it's the same people, but uh, nevertheless, nothing against Manitoba. I have some fun at its expense from time to time. But last night, the NDP won a fairly decisive majority government, took taking over after seven years of PC rule, much of which was governed by Brian Pallister, the very tall man who loved lockdowns more than he loved his pad in Costa Rica. And then he was replaced by Heather Stephenson, who I don't know particularly well or at all, but I know some of the people around her and I thought she had a decent enough team, did not seem like an inspiring campaign in the least. The issues they were talking about were not big picture issues. There was no real broad appeal to conservative principles. And despite maybe saying a couple of things that would be agreeable to a lot of people watching or listening to this show, there was really nothing offered that was all that compelling. Now, I could point out from a campaign strategy perspective a lot of the reasons why Heather Stephenson and the PCs lost. But I will tell you one reason that we cannot blame is the one that some of the commentators in the media have been pushing. One notable example is Rachel Gilmore, a a TikTok influencer who used to work at my old company, Global News. Uh, She tweeted about the PC loss, making the claim that it was effectively a result of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and that the PCs put that on with their parental rights BS. And as Rachel Gilmore writes, if the results so far are any indication, anyone betting on anti-LGBTQ hate as a winning political strategy, and there are many, might want to reconsider. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that. I mean, I won't even dignify the part about how standing up for parental rights is hateful or anti-LGBTQ, because I won't accept and do not accept that premise. But the idea that standing up for parental rights cost the PCs the election is a viewpoint that oftentimes you hear when conservatives are going through their own leadership changes, this belief that being conservative is what cost the election, when the reality is the parental rights policies are pretty much the most popular policies that right-of-center governments, provincially or conceivably the federal party, are pushing for right now. These things are tremendously popular, which is why Blaine Higgs is finding so much support in New Brunswick, why Doug Ford, who has typically shied away from anything conservative, has started to talk about parental rights, why Saskatchewan is invoking the notwithstanding clause to defend provincial rights, and why in Alberta, this has always been a live issue that unites uh, even a lot of non-conservative politicians. So all of this is to say you can't blame the Manitoba PC's loss on standing up for parental rights. And I think it's going to be a very inconvenient narrative when we look at literally any other election that takes place by a party that has taken such a position. And I think the opposite is true. If there is a a party that is going to oppose this, a party that is going to stand against parents and stand against parental rights, I think they will find a very difficult time being relevant. They will find a very difficult time being reelected. And this is why I think, look, we can talk about whether politicians are leaders or followers. I, I used to think that we needed to devote considerable effort and energy into electing the perfect politician, find the perfect candidate, find the perfect leader, the perfect platform, the perfect party, all of that. And as you can understand, I've been waiting a little while. I had the great privilege on the weekend of chatting with the Libertarian Party of Canada convention. They were meeting in my hometown. They sent me an invitation. I've never voted for the Libertarian Party of Canada, but I I believe that 
you know, I am more libertarian than uh, most people. So I think they have a lot of good things to say. And I was happy to have a chat with them. And if any other party were to invite me, I would uh, similarly accept. If the communists want to have me as their keynote speaker, I say, bring it on. You might not like what I have to say, but I will come. Uh, but I'll expect to be paid, which uh, the communists might not agree with. Nevertheless, the uh, we'll wait in the bread line together. But the point of this that I find to be really interesting here is that I, I said that old Milton Friedman line that I am going to butcher, and I'm not quoting directly, I'm paraphrasing, that I learned about from Mark Stein of uh, basically making the conditions so that even the wrong people will do the right thing needs to be the priority. And I think there's a lot of truth to that with the parental rights discussions that are underway right now, where politicians that are typically a lot more uh, tepid in their support or willingness to go into cultural battles are coming out in favor of this. Politicians that would not identify or align with social conservatives that are standing up for parental rights. And beyond that, politicians that I think otherwise are wanting to see where the wind blows are finding that, hey, maybe the wind is blowing in this direction. And, you know, I've heard a lot of complaints from people about politicians that got involved in the COVID mandate fights only when the Freedom Convoy came to town. The politicians that didn't really speak out against mandates or lockdowns or restrictions, that when the convoy came and made it popular, decided to get involved. Now, I would say that's not a bad thing. I would say that's a very good thing. I mean, yes, it would be ideal if people could come to it on their own without needing an event like that. But that, I think, is the power of the convoy as a protest, as a movement, is that it gave enough public support and it gave enough momentum that people that didn't want to take up that fight were prepared to take up that fight. The people that otherwise were too afraid or too nervous or didn't know about the issue or didn't realize the potency of it would get involved, would stand up and say, okay, I'm here with you now. And let's not forget that there is an argument, and you know people may not like it, but there's an argument that we have a one-party system on some issues, and that was never truer than during COVID, when you had all the leaders before that uh, one debate during the 2021 election recording a PSA telling everyone to get vaccinated. You had everyone that was just going along with the uh, requirements for a time. And when that started to chip away, when that started to erode, that was where the conditions had changed, where people started to do the right thing because of a reflection of the time, because those conditions had changed. And I think that's a very important thing to note here. And on the parental rights side of things, the Manitoba PCs made a bunch of tactical errors. They had a leader that didn't really seem to resonate with the electorate, a leader who had never been elected as premier. She won her party's leadership and if I recall, it was very narrowly her uh, win over Shelley Glover. I can't remember the numbers, but never really resonated with Manitobans. And, you know, just because she said the right thing on parental rights does not mean that was an issue she owned. And in fact, I, I'd say it's one she's not. Scott Moe in Saskatchewan and Blaine Higgs in New Brunswick are the most vocal. I had always included uh, what Manitoba's PCs were doing as somewhat of an afterthought to that discussion and to that dialogue. So I guess all of this is to say that we cannot blame, we cannot reverse engineer a narrative uh, to explain away an election result like this, just based on this very, very narrow thing that we care about. And I think there's a risk especially for people who live in that vortex of the internet, people that define reality based on what happens on Twitter and TikTok, there's a very real risk 
of trying to extrapolate from Twitter events that are far larger and far more complicated than that. And I, I've been spending a little bit of time on Twitter lately, ever since they monetized it. And now there's like a financial incentive to be tweeting. And then I sort of pulled back because I realized, what am I doing for like, I don't know, $25 every two weeks or whatever, courtesy of Elon Musk. But uh, nevertheless, uh, it's why independent media is important because you, you have to have that bridge between the social media world and the real world. You can't just get everything from Twitter. Although I, I will point out that uh, there was this uh, tweet from Elon Musk that I, I kind of agree with on, in principle here. Uh, Elon Musk was defending X, which I, I, I can't call it Twitter anymore because he's rebranded it to X. But if I say X, I don't think people would know what I'm talking about. Uh, he writes, I almost never read legacy news anymore. What's the point of reading a thousand words about something that was already posted on X several days ago. And that is, I think, incredibly true here. We are seeing a declining relevance in the legacy media. The legacy media is picking up its stories for the same places that uh, independent journalists are. And when I say independent journalists, I, I'm not just talking about independent media outlets like True North. I'm also talking about citizen journalists. This is the one thing that people in media fail to forget is that we are not given some special license or special permission for us to be journalists. We are human beings with the same right to speak freely, the same knack for investigation, the same curiosity that anyone can have, that anyone can exhibit. And I think that one of the big challenges that a lot of people are effectively saddled with here is that the media has tried to gatekeep truth. They've tried to gatekeep journalism. And in doing so, they are leaving out huge, huge swaths of the population. And I mentioned this on the show yesterday, and I wanted to revisit it. This moment that was captured on the weekend, Pierre Polyev was uh, having a, a very somber interaction at, uh, it was on the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation with an Inuit elder. And uh, this became this rather flurry, uh, th this rather flurry uh, of media attention on this when you had the Liberal Minister, uh, Mark Miller, uh, you know, try to be like, well, actually, and say, well, actually, she's Inuit and not Algonquin, when Polyev was just saying in his tweet that he met with Algonquin people, and, and this woman was also there. And then you had the Canadian press pick it up, and Pierre Polyev uh, tried to uh, talk to uh, the Canadian press about this in a very Polyev-esque way yesterday. But I wanted to go right to the source on this. The woman who was in that photo is a, a very well-known and very well-respected elder. And she joins me now, Manitok Thompson. Uh, wonderful to speak to you. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you. Um, thanks for giving me the opportunity. Actually, I'm an Inuit knowledge keeper and uh, I'm a leader. And at that capacity, when I was there, I didn't go there as an elder. I went there because I wanted to speak to somebody about Inuit issues. And uh, Pierre Pauliet was there. The liberal government has, it, it seemed, often tried to think or, or pretend that it is the, the party that speaks to these issues, and it's the only party that speaks to these issues. And ideally, every politician would respond to issues of Inuit people, of Métis people, of, of First Nations people. So how did you feel when you, talking to a leader of a party, became this political fight between the liberals and the conservatives? I think that's so childish 
just a bunch of children playing games with each other when there's other there's lots of priorities in Canada that has to be dealt with and I'm so glad I had a photo with Pierre Polyet. I'm very glad he was there. It was the Algonquin that led the ceremonies. There were lots and lots of Algonquin people, Inuit, but why would we take pictures of when people are hurting and praying and doing their ceremonies? The only photo that shows is me with uh, Pierre Polyet. And so when he put a statement out that he was happy to meet with the Algonquin elders and leaders, um, it was very clear that he doesn't mean we're all Algonquin. Because when I met him, when I said I wanted to talk to him, he was very open, a very sincere person. And he said, hello. I said, I'm Anito Thompson. He said, you were the minister in Nunavut and NWT. So he knew who he was talking to. And I talked about the Inuit issues. He he knew exactly who he was talking to. But of course, the liberal public have twisted that to their advantage. But you know, it's the most spoken photo right now. And I'm very, very glad to be in the photo with a conservative. And you're saying this not as a woman who has always or, or perhaps ever identified as a conservative. You wanted to be a liberal candidate at one point. I was I was uh, a minister in the Nunavut territory. And when I got out of it, I tried for the Liberal Party. I went through all the steps and I, I, um, I visited a lot, a lot of homes. And I know there were a lot of people that signed up for the Liberal Party because of me. But at the end of the day, they didn't accept me. They didn't accept my nomination. They didn't want me. So why are they complaining now? Do you often, do you feel that Inuit issues are often left out of broader discussions of, of Indigenous issues? Well, actually down here, yeah, because we're so isolated. So whenever I have a chance, because I live in Carlton Place, whenever I have a chance, I go to any gathering. And if there's a leader there, I make sure I get close to them and try to get um, an audience with them. And in this case, Pierre Polyet was very willing to talk to me and he gave me time to talk to him and he listened to all the issues. The reason why I do it is because we just have one chair in the Parliament of Canada. There's nobody else over there. And for so many years, we had liberal MPs, Inuit, two Inuit MPs for years and years. And we were backbenchers for all that time. And I believe we were just being used as an extra motion person. That chair was being used just for the motion to put more numbers on, one more number. But when the conservative got an MP, Leona Agluka, they made her a cabinet minister. They respected Inuit. And um, I was very glad. I'm very glad that there's been a lot of attention put on that photo. And I'm glad I was with Pierre Polyet. 
Now, I mean, I get the sense from what you're saying that you're the type who will speak to anyone and, and who will have these conversations. But are you a conservative supporter now? Are you a Pierre Polyev supporter now? I will. I will support him because I've been sworn at. I've been told off. I've been harassed by the liberal public out there through messages. I... Um, I, want, I was open to any leadership to talk to me. I've always been like that. I'm not there for a selfie. I'm not there to get a photo taken with whoever. But in this case, I was very happy afterwards that I have a photo with Pierre Pauliet because um, he was willing to listen. And you know, uh, I really appreciated that because of all the negative harassment I'm getting, I will support this man. Are you thinking of maybe getting back into politics yourself with a federal election coming up? Would you run for his party? Actually, I've been asked by some, um, by, by some of the public down here, and um, I'm not sure at the moment what I will do because every day I walk in to these gatherings and I just speak to whoever can listen to the Inuit issues. And um, that would be very interesting, wouldn't it be, if I was invited to be nominated in one of the writings down here. That would be something else to have an Inuk um member in parliament representing you wouldn't that be something else well and hopefully if you do run they won't uh, treat your nomination papers the the way the liberals did well uh it was a delight to speak to you ms thompson thank you so much for joining me today thank you for this time all right thank you that does it for us for today this is canada's most irreverent talk show back tomorrow in just 23 hours and 15 minutes here on true north Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.